1 John chapter 5. Let me read the text. It's a new section in verse 13 down through 21. You follow along. John says there that I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, amazing text, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we who are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a great, great section of faith that I've titled uh, The Certainties of Faith. You know, it's interesting that, did you know that over 39 times just in this brief epistle, John writes the word or the phrase, we know. We know. 39 separate times. In fact, just in chapter 5 alone, he, he says it seven times. And so he's writing to us because he wants us to know. And what he does here in this last paragraph is give a series of certainties that result from our faith in Jesus Christ. And each of these certainties is highlighted by the use of the word know. In fact, just glance again in verse 13, there at the second half of 13, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 15, and we know that he hears us. It says later in 15, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Glance down with your eyes in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. Seven different times right here, he mentions that phrase. And so he writes, does John, that we might be certain about the truth of God, that we might be certain about the truth of His Son, that we might be certain regarding eternal life. But clearly, we live in an uncertain world, do we not? We live in a very uncertain world. We think of the events this week in Boston, at the Boston Marathon and the bomb, and it creates uncertainty. I did see a line on one of the news agencies that basically said after that second man was apprehended, we can be safe. And I, I thought for myself, well, maybe for a little while. I mean, we're just, our, our country is uncertain. It's so uncertain that we have insurance to mitigate against any kind of loss. 
We get car insurance, do we not? We have homeowner's insurance for some of us. Some of you have fire insurance. Some of you have theft assurance. Some of you have appliance assurance. You have life insurance. You have farm assurance. All of those, are they not? are building something in the future against some kind of contingency. I mean, something could go wrong. I mean, how much do you pay for in terms of health insurance that you might not ever use? Except if you had that one accident, you need to have it. Now, as you well know, we have marriage contract prenuptial agreements. I noticed this week in the, on the news that one of the professional basketball players was finally divorced, Chris Humphreys. And I'm sure there's prenuptial agreements with all that kind of stuff. There's contingencies set against some loss in the future. I mean, I'd even ask you the question this morning, what are you really certain of? What are you really certain of? It was Ben Franklin who said many years ago, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Um, That's true, isn't it? But the reality is the Bible, the Bible and the scripture is full of certainties. In fact, the epistle of 1 John is full of certainty. That's why he keeps saying, we know, we know, we know, we know. In fact, John concludes this wonderful epistle with the certainties of the Christian faith. And it is a fitting conclusion to the testimony of God and the result of eternal life that is bound up in Jesus Christ that we just saw a couple of weeks ago. Now, what he does here in 1 John, if you're taking notes, and sometimes I really hope you do because I live with the reality that I may never get to this section again, especially that question in verse 16. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask of God and give him life. But listen, if you see somebody committing a sin leading to death, don't even bother to pray. I mean, so listen, as as you think of this section from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, down through 21, John provides five certainties that result from our faith in Christ and actually build us up in the faith. And we'll pick at those and look at those in the next couple of weeks together, okay? But the first certainty that John wants us to know is this, is our assurance of eternal life. Our assurance of eternal life. And it's stated right there in verse 13. Look what it says. I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Stop there. I mean, John wrote this very epistle. You say, why did he write? He wrote it for this purpose, to give you confidence that you indeed are the possessors of eternal life. That's why he wrote the epistle. You can star that. And we've touched on that in the weeks past. I write these things to you so that you would know that you have eternal life. It's not the only place where he uses that phrase, I write these things to you. Go back to 1 John chapter 1 in verse 4. You can see what he says there. There as he opens in that, in that beginning paragraph, he says in 1 John 1, 4, we are writing these things to you 
so that your joy may be made complete. And I really believe that that joy is made complete. And he answers here what constitute that joy. It is the possession of eternal life. But he writes that our joy would be made complete. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, my little children, here's that phrase again, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if someone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so John is writing, is he not? For our joy, he's writing that we may not sin. But I really believe he comes to a central purpose here in 513 that we would know that we have eternal life. Now look down at your scripture in verse 13. He says there, I write these things. Now there's some question as to what are these things. When he says, I write these things, is he just referring to what he just wrote in this paragraph? I think there's substance for that, that what he just wrote, namely regarding Christ and what he wrote about God and what he wrote about the Son of God is the substance of these things. Or maybe you could say that these things um, contain all that he wrote. Maybe when he says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things, he's talking about his entire epistle. Now, there's other expressions of these things, and it just refers to the previous material. If you go back to 2.1, look there, you'll note there that the, these things, I think, just refers to what he had just written in one. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And that was the things that he had just wrote in 1, 5 through 10. He uses that expression another place. Look over at chapter 2 in verse 26. I think he's just referring to previous material. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And he just spoke about the Antichrist. Okay? So John has just written regarding the testimony of his son in verses 5, 6 through 12 to bolster our faith, to give us assurance. But I think really, at the same time, that statement in verse 13 is a summary to the entire epistle as well as an introduction to what will follow in 1321. Now, one of the things that I find interesting here as we come to the close, do you remember when John, the same writer, wrote his gospel? He wrote his gospel, in essence, to unbelievers. You could tag that according to John 20, 31, where it says that he wrote that we might believe in Christ. This epistle, same author, is different. He wrote for believers, not unbelievers, but for believers, that you might know, that you might have assurance of what you believe and thus have eternal life. Now, the, the text is explicit. It's very explicit. You can't just believe, if you will, nilly-willy. You can't just believe everything. There's not many paths that lead to God. There's not many paths that give a relationship. The Bible speaks of one way, and that's an exclusive way through Christ. And you can see it's laid out here. Look at the text again. John says, I write these things to you. Now watch what he says. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. 
And so he's writing that we would know. He's writing to us who believe. But it's not a belief that's all over the place. It's a belief there in 13 in the name of the Son of God, who believe in the name of the Son of God. Look back at chapter 5, verse 5. He spoke of it there. Who is the one who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Glance down at 5.11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his, what? Son. Verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so he writes here in this epistle for believers who have placed their trust in the Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it says, do you remember in first, actually just in John 1, 12, where it says, all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In fact, look back at 1 John chapter 3 in verse 23. It's there again mentioned. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so here is, then as you turn back to 5.13, the purpose of that belief that you may know, here it says, that you have eternal life. We were at baptism class this morning, and one of those in the class just said, I never knew if my name was written in the book of life. And I'd ask you, is your name written in the book of life? And do you know that? Now listen, I've been doing this for a year with you in 1 John. But John writes that you would know that. You should not be unsure of that. If you have placed your faith, and he means it to encourage you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and and have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you, then, and believed on him, then you may know you have eternal life. You should not walk around anxious. You should not walk around like I did when I was 14. I want to spare you of that. You should not worry if you get on a plane, what might happen to you? One time I was on a plane and turbulence came and this lady just next to me just grabbed my hand. And uh, Patty, you weren't there. It wasn't a bad scene, but she's just frightened. Uh, like, not too often that a woman holds my hand, but she was just, you know, you get on a plane, you, you see that, but we should, not ha- we should have assurance. You should walk this day knowing that your salvation is secure, that you know where you're going. And you'll note what it says. Just look down. I write these things so that you may know. Listen, it's not that you may come to have assurance, but that you may have assurance even today. Now, you say, well, why did he write that? Well, I think John wrote to believers at times who were tempted to doubt that reality. And you remember we said that they were tempted to doubt that reality because of the presence of the false teachers 
He says, I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This is not the first time he's used that phrase, is it? Look back to chapter 1. He's talked a lot about eternal life. Remember, he said that which was from the beginning in 1.1, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was made manifest, verse 2, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The purpose of this epistle is that you may know that you have it. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 25, where it says there, it back up to 24, let, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you. if what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 14. We know, just in a little bit of a different phrase, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him but verse 14 says that we've passed out of death into life look over at chapter 5 again verse 11 you just see that phrase this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and that life is in his son verse 12 whoever has the son has what life so this is the certainty of our salvation I mean how encouraging And so I would just ask, do you know that reality? Do you know that if you died, where would you go? There can't be a greater question than that, is there? I mean, whether it's a bomb or whether it's cancer or an accident, all of us will stand before the Lord. And John here, so gracious to to say, in an uncertain world, Here's the first certainty, is our assurance of eternal life. Now, you remember, and I won't digress too far here, that throughout this entire epistle, John gave us the criteria by which we can test ourselves to be sure of eternal life. Remember that? We noted that some people who think they're going there aren't going there. But he's writing that we'd have confidence. And remember, he gave us a series of tests that we would know that. I just touch on them. He said, first, there's a doctrinal test. A doctrinal test. Do you affirm that God is light? Do you affirm that God is holy? Do you affirm that God sent his son? And bound up in that doctrinal test is the fact that God the Father sent his only begotten son to be a savior. There's, a, there's an affirmation of that doctrinal test, and he wants you to know that those are the people who have that assurance. But secondly, we noted that there's a moral test, right? That the people who could really know this at the end of the book are the people who obey God, are the people who love God. And we took time there. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It simply means that the affections of your heart The desires of your heart, we talked about this at baptism class today, is to honor the Lord. In fact, one man said in our class today, he goes, the difference between when I wasn't in Christ and now that I am in Christ is before I never used to be bothered by my sin. 
Now I notice I get tripped up at times, but I notice that I know that I shouldn't be there. And I know that I should have a different pattern in my life. So when you talk about the moral test, it's what somebody loves. In other words, we spent time to say you can't walk an aisle. You can't pray a prayer. You can't stand on a dotted line. You can't look back to when you were four. You can't even look back to when, when you're at high school. You can't go back to when you went to the Young Life Camp or when you went to Hume Lake Camp and then think somehow 15 years later that counts. John says that doesn't count. John says if you really want to know that you're in the faith, then there's going to be a doctrinal test affirming the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a moral test. You're going to want to honor him. It's not that you're going to be bound up by do's and don'ts, but you're not going to love the lifestyle that you used to live. In fact, the lifestyle you used to live now will repulse you a little bit, right? I mean, Jeff Rizabas, I see you out there. Is that true? Is, I mean, is that not true of you? But it's just a true statement, isn't it? If you're in Christ, you don't want to do what you once did. In fact, you say, well, then you're just a good person. No, it's not a good person. He changes you from the inside out and the very nature of being born again. And so there was the doctrinal test, then the moral test. And then thirdly, so huge in John, just huge, was the relational test. Do you just love the people of God? Do you love the body of Christ? Do you want to be around the body of Christ? Do you want to find yourself in the local church and around other believers? That's the relational test. Because you can't say you love God and not love one another. Those who truly love God, those who are truly born again, are those who love each other. And so remember, he gave us that criteria, doctrinal, moral, and even relational. And you remember, I think he's attacking this issue to encourage us because I think there were some people who departed from the faith. Remember, they went out from us, 219. They were not really of us. If they were of us, they would not have left us, but they left us that it might be proven that they're not really of us. And remember, these are the people who claimed special stuff. I don't know a way to say it. There's a lot of people today who claim even special revelation. And that's what the Gnostics built their system on. They built their system on that God has spoken to me. God talks with me, kind of outside the scripture. And so there were people that claimed special revelation. They claimed special knowledge. And I think some of the people who got left within the church wondered, hey, am I really the real deal? Am I really a believer. And what John does is he wants to write to us that we're the ones who actually know God, that we're the ones who live in obedience to his commands. We're the ones who love one another. We're the authentic ones is what John is saying. Now, now look down again at the text there in 513. Um, It says that you may know you have eternal life. And I just, again, just a little footnote as most of the stuff in 1 John, that's in the present tense. In other words, you're not waiting for it. Eternal life is experienced even now. In other words, you you are the possessor of it now. You have it today as you walk about. You have it today as you lay your head on the pillow. You have it as you travel. You have it as you fly in the air, okay? Say, well, Um, what is it? I I mean, we've touched on it. What is eternal life? Well, it's to, I don't know. There's a lot I could say, but it is to live forever with God in heaven. 
I mean, there's more that could be said. It's union with Christ. It's relationship with Christ. But it is to live forever in heaven with God. And you are assured of that. I mean, that life is in us now. And one day it comes in a much fuller, fuller expression. And remember that we've stated all along that eternal life is not only the duration of life forever and ever, but it is a relationship with the Son of God that we experience now. And so here's the first certainty. It's the assurance of eternal life. Now, as a result of that assurance of eternal life, we can, here's his text, here's where he's going, have confidence and boldness before God in prayer. That's the transition here. So look at the text, and here's that second certainty. It's our approach to God in prayer. So the first certainty is this, our assurance of eternal life. I could tell you that I have that assurance. I hope you have that assurance. But there's a second certainty, and it's our approach to God in prayer. Our approach to God in prayer. And it's bound up in verses 14 through 17. Now, it says there, look at 14, and, and he links it there. He's, he's, he's still saying that here's something we could know. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he, what? He hears us. He's just giving us another certainty. Be assured of your salvation, and here, be assured of your approach to God in prayer. So in addition to eternal life, We have confidence before God in prayer. Now, you say, how can I understand this section that runs down through 17? He provides four key points to approach God in prayer, okay? So it's little sub points here, four key points. First, if you're keeping notes, letter A is confidence in prayer. I mean, you can see it. Look Look at the text again in verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. Now, confidence is, is like the ideal of to come boldly. It's, it's to come freely is the thought. It's, it actually means to speak freely is what the word means. It's not the first time that we've seen this word. In fact, John uses it when he says of you that you can have confidence in the day of judgment. You don't have to be afraid. Do you remember that? Look back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Here it's in relation to judgment, the judgment day. He says, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears in 2.28, or comes again, we may have what? Confidence, the freedom, the boldness is what it means, and not shrink away from him at shame in his coming. So he, he doesn't want us to think of the second coming and be thinking, We're going to shrink. He wants us to have confidence in light of that day. Look over at chapter 4 in verse 17. Remember there it was used again as the judgment day, but this love is perfected with us. And in 4.17, so that we may have confidence, same Greek word, for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. But as he uses the word here, rather than just confidence and boldness and freedom of speech, Here, he's linking it to prayer. He says, you not only have the assurance, that certainty, but you can approach God in prayer in confidence. Now, that's not the first time he said it here. Look back in 321. He mentions it there. He says, beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, here it is in 321, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive of him 
And here it is, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, now look at the text specifically in 1 John 5, 14. And I love this little phrase. It says, this is the confidence we have, it says, toward him. In other words, before him. Literally, this is the confidence we have in his presence, is the thought. I mean, what a relationship we enjoy. This access is present joy even today. So really what John is saying here is we can come boldly to the throne of God. And that you can do because of your relationship to Christ. You can boldly approach God in prayer. It's the confidence we possess before God in prayer. Okay? So there's the confidence in prayer. But secondly... Would you note the condition in prayer? The condition in prayer. There's a condition. This is important. It says, if we ask, what does it say? Anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, it says there, if we ask anything according to his will. But you'll note before it says that, it says, if we ask anything. And the word anything there is put in the emphatic epistle. Uh, uh, we call it the emphatic position, calling attention to the limitless realities of what we may bring before God in prayer. But, but, our prayer is conditioned by praying according to his what? His will. Now, I'm just, I'm just being honest with you what the, what the Bible says I mean, some of you want to say, listen, we can pray about anything. Yeah, you can. You can pray about anything. You could be confident that he's going to hear you. But whenever we read and study the Bible, there's a condition in prayer. And some people might not even like that I say that there's a condition in prayer, but there is a condition in prayer so as to not be confusing. You say, well, what's the condition? Look again. You see it in verse 14. If we ask anything, and here's the condition, according to his what? will. In other words, when you come before God, it is not about you. It is not about your kingdom. It is not about your wants. We are to pray his kingdom come, his what? Will be done. Matthew, I think it's 6.10 in the Lord's Prayer. Listen, when we come to God, we do not impose our will on God or even bend our will to his, the thought, no, in, I mean, I suppose you could bend it, um, and we're not to bend our will to his will and his kingdom, but in prayer, that's, that's what I meant to say, we are to bend it. We are to align our will to his. We're not to impose ours on his. You know, there's other passages that talks about conditions for prayer, You say there are? Yeah, I mean, we could be here for a series, and I won't do that to you. But if you just turn back one page or look at 322, here's a condition. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, but it doesn't end there, does it? Because we keep his, what? Commandments and do what pleases him. So there's there what I call a qualifier. So here is the confidence in prayer, but there's a condition in prayer. But again, prayer is aligning our will to God's. Our prayer should be, God, your will be done. God, your will be done for my job. 
It's a little different than we think sometimes. Your will be done for my household. Your will be done for my children. Your will be done for my life. Your will be done for my trial. Your will be done for my health. Your will be done for this church. And I do say the church because it's God's church, is it not? But some might think it's their church and what they would like to do. Now, this condition is placed on prayer, is cited in many other texts as well. You say, well, show me. Okay, look over to the Gospel of John. Just trying to be um, exhaustive with you here in this sense. In John 14, certainly you have this limit, this limitless effect, if you will, as you read it, but then you think, oh, no, 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 there it is. Like in John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my, what? Name. There's a condition. You can ask, but when you ask, you ought to ask in his name. And then it says, comma, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, underline this, in my, what? Name, I will do it. This is the prayer that I read in the Scripture. So when you get to certain people in a certain type of Christianity, and they get into the name it and the claim it, that he wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy, I don't buy it. The question would be is, are you praying according to his will? Are you praying in his name? Look over at John chapter 15, verse 7. Very similar. He says, if you, 15, 7, abide in me and my words abide in you, that's the condition, ask whatever you wish and it will be what? Done for you. And it will be done because you're praying according to the will of God for his kingdom come and for his will to be done. Look over at John chapter 16, verse 23. Is this not what our Lord said there? He said, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. But truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, here's the condition, in my Name, in other words, according to my purposes, according to my plans, according to my kingdom, he will give it to you. Verse 24, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. So there's conditions all over in prayer, is there not? Husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be, what? Hindered. If you want to hinder your prayer life, then don't treat your wife as a vessel of honor, and your prayer will be hindered. My point is, there's conditions all over the Word of God, and we see them in John. How about this? It says in Mark eleven twenty four, Jesus said, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you. Jesus says, truly I will tell you. Whatever you ask in prayer, he says, believe that you have received it, and it is yours. But whatever you ask, it must be accompanied by belief and these other things. So there the condition was in believing. Listen. This does not mean here, when we look at that limitless anything, that God answers every prayer. Sometimes our desires are not God's, right? So praise God. 
he doesn't answer those prayer requests. In fact, I just so fired up for the book of James when we finish this book. And this is what we're going to do. We'll finish this one. We'll roll into the next one. I'm already getting ready for you. But you know that one in James 4, 3. When you ask, he says, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasure. He says, you're asking, but when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. Listen, God has promised to supply our needs, not to meet our greeds, if you will, right? Okay, so we have no reason to think that all our prayers will be answered in the affirmative. You say, well, you just need more faith. No, you don't. There's some things God won't answer. There's some things that he'll, I think there's an affirmation that will hear you. But it doesn't mean that he's going to answer every one of your prayer requests. Nor did he do that for the great men of the Bible like Moses. When he prayed in Exodus 32 for the rebellious sins of the people to be forgiven. And God refused that prayer and judged the nation in Exodus 32. He prayed God forgive them. And God did forgive some of them. But the ones who rebelled in the, in the making of the golden calf, they were executed on the spot. Okay? Listen, Moses prayed to enter the promised land and God turned down the request of Moses to enter the promised land. You remember in Deuteronomy 3. So just because you pray doesn't mean that God is going to become a genie to make what you want work. This is how, and you say, well, Scott, why are you teaching? Because this is how people get messed up. Or this is how some people say you just don't have enough faith. And all your prayers are centered on yourself rather than his kingdom come, his will be done. Listen, God promises this to ignore presumptuous prayers. You say like where? You don't have to look there. I'll read it for you. But in Isaiah 115, you've seen it before. He says, when you spread out your hands, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. You say, why? He said, because your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 115. They were a wicked nation. He's not going to listen to that prayer. I mean, you think if you're an unjust ruler, he's going to listen to you? Do you think if you're a ruler in the Old Testament and you treated the poor unkindly, that he's going to listen? No. I mean, I'm just reading from Micah. You don't have to turn there. Just listen, okay? Micah says, here, listen to the word of God. You heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil and tear the skin off my people. Now, you say, were they tearing the skin off the people? No, I don't think they were doing that. I think it was their attitude towards the poor was like the butchering of animals, okay? But listen to what the prophet said. He said, you who tear the skin off from my people and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron, then they will call, cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Micah 3, 1 through 4. So whoever's unpacking this kind of theology of name and claim it isn't reading the Bible that I'm reading. 
isn't reading all the prayers that, I, that we're reading out of the Word of God. Listen, here's the confidence in prayer, but there's a condition in prayer. In fact, let me show you this one. Look over to Jeremiah. I just I don't want to be too, too long here, but in Jeremiah, I thought this was very interesting. Look over to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 6. It's not really funny, but I'm just like, oh, okay. Um, um, let me see if I got the right. Oh, there it is. I couldn't find it. It's Jeremiah seven sixteen. Here's what God told Jeremiah. You're like, really? Yeah. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not, what? hear you. Wow. Look over at uh, Jeremiah. Turn a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 11. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 14. He says, therefore, he says it again in eleven fourteen. do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or pray on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. Wow. He says it again. Look over at chapter 14, verse 11. He says it there. And he just basically said in chapter 14, in verse 11, the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Obviously, because they were so disobedient to the Lord, were they not? So for people today who just think they can, I don't know if you meet people like that, or maybe it's just all we do is pray about ourselves sometimes. When you get to the Lord's prayer, it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father who art where? In heaven. The first three petitions are vertical. The second three are horizontal as they relate to us, and maybe it'd be helpful if we remembered as we pray to pray according to his will. I'm just thinking of those two guys. Remember them? In, in Mark chapter 10, James and John, they said, Teacher, this is the modern paraphrasing, we want you to do whatever we would what? Ask of you. I think some people would like God just to be a little genie just bring them out, rub them, get them, you know, out, out comes the request and what you need. He said, do whatever we want. It's a loaded question. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, I want you, I want you to grant to us to sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup which I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, his death. And, and they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Oh, you will die. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Yes, you will follow me in suffering. But to sit on my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those who it's been prepared. So you can ask him to sit on the right and the left. But Jesus said, it's not yours to ask. In fact, I'm trying to think of the prayers that we make before God that he doesn't ask. Like, the, remember when Christ in Luke's gospel was mistreated by that village in Luke 9? And when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down out of heaven from consume, and consume them? 
But remember, Jesus turned and he rebuked them and uh, harshly for their attitude. I mean, have you ever felt like that? You ever want somebody to be consumed by that? I'm thankful that the Lord doesn't answer all of our prayers, right? Praise God. Has it ever occurred to you? Certainly you know this. Paul prayed how many times for his thorn to be removed? He prayed three times for the Lord to be removed. And I can tell you in my short statement here, God said to him what? No. Okay? Three times. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in weakness. Praise God. Because he knew the power of God released in the midst of his thorn. And I could go on, but the greatest example of what we're talking about, praise God, is our precious Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That when he was in Gethsemane, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me. That's what he prayed. Aren't you thankful that that didn't happen? Because quickly there, you know the words, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as what? As you will. Let this cup pass from me. You say, what's the cup? Is it a literal cup? No. You know, it's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of isolation from his father. It is the cup of the wrath of God. And drinking this cup would make him a curse. And he repeatedly asked if this cup would be removed. Yet, this is how we should pray. Not as I will, but as you will. And so he submits to his father's mission, which in essence was his mission. And his prayer was conditional, was it not? On the will of God. And he would never, ever, ever set his will in opposition to his father's. Because this was always his desire to do his father's will. He said in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's an example for us who are living maybe comfortable, maybe at ease. Our will should be to do His will. John 6.38, I have come down, Jesus said, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Wow. Praise God. He yielded, did He not, His own desire to submit to the Father's desire. He said in John 12.27, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, question mark. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Wow. To suffer. John 14, 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Listen. His will to obey his father's will was stronger than his desire to serve himself. Wow. And we sometimes just live for ourselves, do we not? 
Praise God that we have such a great high priest. He never did the Lord Jesus Christ swerve from the path of suffering. He accepts the cup. He meets the hour. In essence, he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done. You want to see one cool verse? Look over in Hebrews. Have you seen this before? Hebrews. I love this statement, and I'm illustrating Christ. I love this. Hebrews 5, 7, where it says there, have you ever, incredible, and I really believe the scene, obviously, is the Garden of Gethsemane, but it says there in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, and he's living, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And I love that. He was heard because of his reverence. Oh, listen, he was there in Gethsemane offering up loud cries, loud tears to him who was able to save him from death. But praise God that he did not get off the path that his father had given to him. So here, prayer is not a device for imposing our will upon God but subordinating our will to his. Maybe it's enough to just ask you, have you done that as a believer right now? You may be in the midst of a trial. You may have had the carpet yanked out from you in the last year. And you know what? It might not even be you that did it. It could be somebody else who did it. But listen, as the Lord is working with you, your goal is to get your will underneath his will and to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Lord, make me and allow me to be useful to your purposes in an imperfect world. Listen, you've not arrived in heaven yet, have you? And either have I. So just rest assured there's something wrong with everything, right? Everything, something's wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have joy, but I'm just trying to help you get underneath his will. We're not in heaven. It awaits us. So here's the confidence in prayer. Here's the condition for prayer. And let me just finish here with the confirmation in prayer. Now, you'll note there as you go back to 1 John, and I'm almost done here. He just says, but but I don't want to miss this either. If we ask anything according to his will, he what? He hears us doesn't mean that I'll answer the way that we would sometimes answer, but it says that he hears us. And it's such an encouragement to pray that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are towards their cry. Psalm 34, 15, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. So listen, as I give you the condition, don't forget the confirmation that he, that he hears us. I think at Jeremiah 9.31, when it says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. In fact, look what the text says in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Because God hears our prayers, we could be confident that God will respond to our petition. Oh, it may be revealed in a different way or time than we thought, but it will be granted. And the confidence here is that he hears us. Not that he'll answer every prayer, but it must be unpacked in light of that condition according to his will. 
You know, have you ever read about George Mueller? How many of you ever read about that guy? What a great man. This is why I read biographies. I just read Luther last week. Um, not a big one, a little one. I, but I just, I read B- B- Mueller as a young kid, and he began quoting from one of his sermons in Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he outlined, did Mueller in that sermon, a number of his conditions upon which successful prayer depends. He said, first, our petitions, as we're saying, must be according to God's will. Secondly, we must not ask on account of our own goodness or merit, but in the name of Jesus Christ. Mueller was careful to remind his congregation, however, that as he often did, of Psalm 66 that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not what? Hear me. So there's another condition. And, uh, but he just, he talked about faith and he, he did this, but I love what he said here. I'm just, I'm skipping ahead. But he, he said, quote, Mueller, I have found invariably in 54 years, which I have been a believer, that if I only believed that I was sure to get in God's time the thing I asked for, I, he said, I would especially lay this on your heart as you exercise faith in the power and willingness of God to answer your request. We must believe that God is able and that he's willing. And Mueller said this. He said, if I say that during 54 years that I have been a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, he said, I have had 30,000 answers to prayer either the same hour or the same day that the requests were made, I should not go a particle too far. He said, often before leaving my bedroom in the morning, have I had prayer answered that was offered that morning, and in the course of the day, I have had five or six more answers to prayer, so that at least 30,000 prayers have been answered the same hour or the self-same day that they were offered but, but he says, but one or another might suppose that all my prayers have been promptly answered. No, not all of them. Sometimes I have had to wait weeks, months, years, and sometimes many years. I don't know if I've told you he prayed for five friends. Did I tell you that? He prayed for five friends to come to Christ, and the fifth one came to Christ after George Mueller died. He prayed faithfully for him for 59 years of his life. So listen, this is a man of prayer, and you have to have the assurance. Listen, if you pray in his name and pray in his will, he's going to hear you. And then this is one of my favorite stories. You ever hear this one? He said the story is told, and it was a captain of a ship on which George Mueller was traveling. He said, did the captain, we had Mueller on board, and I had been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. And George Mueller came to me, and he said, Captain, he said, I've come to tell you that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. The captain said, that's impossible, Mueller. Then Mueller said, very well, if your ship cannot take me, God will take me some other way. I have never broken a speaking engagement in 57 years. Let us go down to the chart room and pray. The captain said that he's writing. I looked at the man of God and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can that man have come from? For I have never heard of such thing as this. Mr. Mueller, I said, The captain said to him, do you know how dense the fog is? No, he replied. Mueller said, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. And the captain said that he knelt down and he prayed one of the simplest prayers. And when he had finished, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on his shoulder and he told me not to pray. You're right. 
And Mueller said, as you do not believe he will answer, and I believe he has, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. Captain, I have known my Lord, he said, for 57 years, and there has never been a single day when I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find that the fog is gone. I got up, and the fog was indeed gone. And on that Saturday afternoon, Mueller kept his engagement. There's a man who prayed. And he prayed according to the will of God. And you could just, you know, the, the answers that he had to prayer were incredible. But listen, he writes for the certainty of your salvation. And he writes for the certainty of your approach to God that he will hear you. Amen? 